Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damien Garde. It's Thursday, February 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. It's earnings season. Four times a year, publicly traded companies report how much money they made in the previous three months and make forecasts about how much money they expect to make in the future. In pharma and biotech, they also provide glimpses into what's going on in the world of medicines. So we'll dig into some of the most interesting updates. We'll also talk about a legal setback for Johnson & Johnson involving a maneuver known as the Texas Two-Step. And Stat Washington correspondent Rachel Kors will tell us what the ending of the U.S. COVID public health emergency in May means for us. But first, a word from our sponsor. At Tradeoffs, we like to get under healthcare's hood. There are just all these sort of leaky pipes across the healthcare system, which, if tightened, would lead you to save money. We dig into the numbers behind the policy. I will admit, I am a fangirl of the Congressional Budget Office. This <laughs> Who's not? Yes, they're amazing. When they drop their numbers, we all go running, right? Data, research, it all informs our journalism and the stories we tell. Healthcare, policy, people. Subscribe now to Tradeoffs. What do we call these drugs, Damien? Are we, call, are we calling them, inter- we don't call them glip-1s. I, I, I feel like everyone else t- calls them glip-1s. Incretin? Incretins? I think you can say whatever you want. I also think that it is a very, like, trying to make fetch happen-ass endeavor. <laughs> Stop trying to make incretin happen. So some of the most closely watched drugs out there right now are um, this new class whose name I will leave to Adam to decide what to call them. Uh, But they are for uh, diabetes. And in Novo Nordisk's case, they also have an indication in obesity. Um, Adam, tell us what we learned from Novo Nordisk and Lily's earnings report about this new class of medicines. Right, Meg. So some people call these drugs the GLP-1 class of drugs or uh, incretin incretin mimetics is another name that you'll you'll hear them referred to as um rolls off the tongue it, it totally rolls off the tongue uh right but you know these are these are a new uh, a new class of drugs that are being used to treat diabetes and and more recently uh and it's obviously been a ton of ton of news coverage uh, about this you know to treat obesity and uh so we had uh reports this week from both Novo Nordisk which is the Danish drug maker as well as Eli Lilly um both those companies are getting a lot of attention for their glip1 class drugs uh to treat diabetes and obesity um Novo Nordisk is is probably the one that gets most of the attention because they have a drug called Wegovy, which uh, is one of these GLP ones that is actually approved here in the U.S. Uh, to treat obesity, which has uh, been growing like gangbusters uh, to the point where uh, actually the demand for the drug has outstripped the supply. Um, as we've reported in others, you know, there's kind of been supply constraints basically because uh, Novo Nordisk cannot make enough of this drug. Now that that problem is sort of resolving itself, and so it was really interesting to hear them report on uh, Q4 sales, which uh, obesity care sales grew uh, at a constant exchange rate of 84% uh, year over year, which is just a huge number uh, in terms of the growth, uh, and that has uh, been a big focus, Meg, as you know, from investors who are seeing this class of drugs as kind of the next huge commercial blockbuster uh, potential. I think I saw one analyst say that these drugs in diabetes and obesity could do like $80 billion a year. So it's a 
it's a huge potential market. You you had, um, as we mentioned, Eli Lilly also sells a Glip One right now in diabetes, uh, and they are uh, advancing that uh, that class of drugs also to cover uh, obesity. You had Dave Ricks on uh, CNBC this morning. What did he say? Yeah. So it's interesting because Manjaro, their diabetes drug, is so closely watched and it actually came in a little bit short of expectations in the fourth quarter. But, you know, Dave Ricks was just talking about how incredible this launch has been for them and how fast it's going. And he was really saying it's not the revenue that they're using as the metric right now. They're really looking at the volume uh, of the number of patients who are starting this medicine. Um, And I think there's some sort of complexities in there because of how the medicine's getting paid for in terms of how that actually translates into revenue. So he's arguing that is really not the important metric, at least at the beginning. Um, You know, it's interesting because there's been so much demand for these medicines that there have been supply constraints. They haven't been able to manufacture as much. So he talked about um, increasing the manufacturing capacity for their medicines. I also asked him, you know, just about the idea that people are using these off-label. I mean, this is like the drug of choice of the rich and, you know, concerned about weight um, right now. And you're seeing like, TikTok videos about people using Ozempic off-label and getting quote-unquote Ozempic face where like they're losing so much fat that their face starts to sag and they need fillers. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we're hearing about. So I asked him if this is safe. And, you know, obviously he wasn't going to comment extensively on off-label use of their medicines, but talked about how they're, you know, going to make sure they're, you know, promoting them to the appropriate populations and arguing how necessary they are for those populations of patients. So obviously these drugs are getting so much attention because of their uh, ability to to help people lose weight. Um, but the outcomes or, or the health outcomes for, for people beyond that is still sort of up in the air. Damien, you, you had mentioned uh, a clinical trial that's pretty important and it will be closely watched that's coming up later this year. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating as you see the excitement over these drugs, both on the cultural level and like the TikToks that Meg mentioned, but also um, on Wall Street, where th- these are projected to be a potential kind of like next Lipitor level uh, products in development. I don't know which of them will become the next Lipitor, but people may remember the statins. There were many winners in that market, and that's definitely been an expectation assigned to this class of drugs. But there was no question, thanks to large-scale trials, that taking statins had long-term benefits for people with high cholesterol. With these medicines, it is medical conventional wisdom, albeit often challenged, that losing weight for people diagnosed with obesity would lead to long-term improvements in health outcomes versus not losing the weight, which is to say uh, less likely to have a heart attack, less likely to have a stroke, less likely to to die of any kind of cardiovascular issue. However, we don't actually have like hard, randomized, prospective data on that, but we soon will. So this is a really long preamble to answer your question, Adam, which is that Novo Nordisk, the Danish drug company in question, has been running a very large clinical trial. I think it's upwards of 17,000 people followed for about five years who are diagnosed with obesity and get either uh, their GLP-1 treatment or placebo. And while there's no question really that patients who get the drug will lose weight, we will find out whether they will endure fewer cardiac complications, which is say heart attacks, strokes, and death from cardiovascular disease. Now, like I said, it, it, it follows logic, and there seems to be an assumption that that trial will read out positive. It is now expected to read out this summer, um, or even Q3. I think Nova Nordisk has been a little vague about it because it depends on how many outcomes, um, how many heart attacks and such are tracked in the study. But 
if that study is not clearly positive, this narrative could change. Now, the demand for these drugs, which seems to be driven by the fact that they clearly make you lose weight, probably won't change because I mean, for obvious cultural reasons. But for the insurance companies and payers who will decide whether they appear on formularies, whether they'll be reimbursed for, et cetera, which is really the real barrier to reaching those $90 billion sales figures, they are probably going to be less likely to want to pay for them if it turns out that they don't have hard outcomes benefits in the long term, if it turns out that they simply help you lose weight in the short term. So that's something to watch. I mean, I don't know how to project that trial. Like I said, it's it's kind of the first of its kind in this world. And so as we get closer to that data, Rita, I think that's going to become much more of a conversation about these medicines than, than it has been to date. So I think the other big uh, pharma earnings news this week came from Pfizer, you know, the biggest pharma of them all. And, and they gave some really granular guidance for the year ahead regarding their COVID products, both, both their vaccine and, and therapeutic. Uh, Meg, what did you hear? Yeah, it, it was really interesting. And this is sort of an underlying issue throughout a lot of the you know pharma earnings this quarter as uh, the ones that produce products during the pandemic that helped with the pandemic are now seeing much lower sales in general from those products. Um, you know, Merck reported earnings on Thursday morning. Um, it also has Molnupiravir, another COVID antiviral. It's used less than Paxlovid from Pfizer, but it is used. And, you know, they forecast a billion dollars in sales this coming year. Um, but that's down from five and a half billion in 2022. Um, for Pfizer, you know, they are talking about the transition to a commercial market for vaccines and drugs. And this kind of goes hand in hand with the end of the uh, emergency declaration, even though that, as we'll hear from Rachel, the EUA system is not getting affected by that. Um, but it's all kind of happening at the same time. They are modeling for this to happen in the second half of the year. So as the government supplies of vaccines and drugs get used up, um, you know, Pfizer and other companies will start selling through traditional channels uh, for vaccines. And with that is going to come a price increase, you know, 110 to $130 a dose for the vaccine is what Pfizer's put out there. I did speak with Albert Borla on the phone on Tuesday um, about that, the pushback they've gotten, you know, from folks like Bernie Sanders. Um, and, you know, he called it a responsible price and he called it cost effective. Um, so, you know, it's the usual suspects uh, accusing the drug industry of price gouging and the usual response from the industry, which is, you know, we're not going to listen to you and we don't have to. Um, but in terms of the <laughs> in terms of the detail on COVID, you know, it used to be that they just said, you know, how much governments were buying and for how much, and that went into their guidance. But now um, they're actually forecasting 112 million symptomatic infections globally in 2023, excluding China. They estimate 17% of uh, people will be treated with an oral antiviral, and that 90% uh, will be their market share for Paxlovid. Um, th these are the kinds of assumptions they go through. And what's really interesting, actually, is that 112 million symptomatic infections they see this year is actually slightly more than they said there were in 2022. There were 110 million this previous year. They say, uh, quote unquote, the increase is due to expected waning of population immune protection due to reduced vaccination rates. So, you know, as fewer people get vaccinated, they also expect 24% of the U.S. population will receive a vaccine in 2023. That's compared with 31% in 2022. So it's, it's just, you know, you're kind of like learning about public health at least through the eyes of a pharmaceutical company in this earnings report. Yeah, it is kind of fascinating because it's it's not like we, from the outside looking in, assumed that 
drug companies were not doing this level of granular diligence on the money that they would potentially make because that is their job and they employ lots of people who are incentivized to to do so. But um, Pfizer actually sharing it was interesting. And, and it kind of makes sense because this is a company that has become synonymous, at least in terms of the drug industry, with how the pandemic is going and that they sell the West's most popular vaccine and therapeutic for COVID-19. So they are kind of like a bellwether for projecting the future of the pandemic. The thing that I thought was interesting, um, you mentioned in those notes, they they exclude, or those numbers rather, they exclude anything that might come from China. And there has been a focus, there's been this focus on the investor side of this kind of looming potential boon to Western drug companies that is China, both in terms of vaccines and in therapeutics. And as we've seen, uh, Moderna seems to get asked every time they are in front of microphones whether they might one day be able to sell their COVID-19 vaccine in China, which to date has not happened. And likewise with Pfizer and their partners, BioNTech. What's interesting with Paxlovid is that Pfizer and Merck both have, I guess the term is like provisional approvals in China for their COVID-19 therapeutics. And Pfizer has sold some number, I think in the low millions of doses to the Chinese government um, through, I think, a local partner during the spike of COVID cases that followed China's abrupt shift in policy for how they were handling the pandemic. But there has been no, at least as far as we know, agreement on selling more doses of Paxlovid to China, even though it seems like investors are kind of fixated on this as that would be something that would change Pfizer's financial outlook for 2023 if that were to happen. But what was interesting that happened over the weekend was the Chinese government granted provisional approval to two COVID-19 therapeutics from domestic manufacturers. And so if we look at the what's played out in the vaccine world, where the Chinese government has prioritized domestically produced vaccines at the, I shouldn't say at the cost, but excluding those made by Pfizer, Moderna, and others in the West, I think it'd be reasonable to infer that now that there are two provisionally approved therapeutics um, made in China, that the government would prefer those to ever ordering more doses of Paxlovid or Merck's antiviral. But that's something that's still kind of playing out in the background as everybody fixates on these numbers from Pfizer and other companies and how they might shape the coming year of COVID-19. Yeah, And my last word on Pfizer is just, uh, I don't like to bog down the podcast with numbers, but it is remarkable, right? They So Pfizer closed out 2022 with $100 billion in revenue. That's a huge number. And their forward guidance for revenue for the for this year, for the current year, 2023, is you know in the $70 billion range. So it kind of gives you a sense of how much COVID- And they say the decline is entirely because of declines in yeah, COVID revenue. It, it right? is. It's remarkable. It's remarkable how much money was, uh, how much revenue was generated from COVID products. Um, so moving on, I, I guess a kind of a confusing update about Novavax and their- COVID vaccine. I feel like whenever we talk about Novavax, we should use the sad trombone sound. But uh, Meg, what what's going on with Novavax? Yeah. So earlier this week, um, this reporter, Alexander Tin, who is like one of the most informative COVID reporters on Twitter, um, and I presume in real life as well, although I follow him on Twitter, he works for CBS News in DC. Um, but he tweeted a slide from um, a sort of vaccine slide deck of, of you know, the, I think it's sort of the federal ordering system of, of COVID vaccines. Um, and the slide says that the 
current uh, U.S. supply of Novavax will expire at the end of February and won't receive shelf life extensions. It says CDC will turn off ordering for Novavax at the end of January and shipment for the product will stop in early February. Um, and you know, just points out that final provider orders are due on Friday, January 27th. Um, so it it gave the impression that like Novavax's vaccine was just like quietly disappearing from the market, and. I think a lot of people took it that way, at least looking at the replies to this tweet. And a lot of people were disappointed because Novavax, because J&J has been de-emphasized so much, Novavax is really the only alternative to mRNA vaccines out there. It's a protein-based vaccine. Um, so I reached out to the company to, to try to understand what was going on, and they did clear it up. I mean, it sounds like uh, there are doses out there that had a nine-month shelf life, Um they are expiring. Uh, they said they're in active conversations with the government to ensure continuity of access to the vaccine. Uh, and they say, in the meantime, as with all vaccines, doses already in the market are available for administration until the date of expiry. Um, the other question I had about Novavax more broadly was that after the Verpac meeting, the, the advisory meeting to the FDA previous week, um, you know, the vote was to make the all the vaccines out there uh, the same. So whether you're getting a primary series or a booster dose, it would be a bivalent vaccine. Well, Novavax doesn't have a bivalent version available on the market. So I wondered what happens to them. It doesn't sound like they're going to put out a bivalent now, you know, to BA5 and the original, which is what the mRNA vaccine bivalents are. But it does sound like they expect to be in the running when the FDA recommends an update to the strain going forward. So it sounds like right now there will be an expiration of Novavax vaccines and perhaps until we get to the fall and there's a new strain recommendation, maybe there won't be Novavax vaccines until then. Um, we'll also have to see if they can keep a pace with the mRNA vaccine manufacturers when there's a strain change. They indicated it would take them longer than the mRNA companies to update the vaccine because of the manufacturing process. And Novavax has had trouble with manufacturing before. That's kind of been the story over and over again that they just haven't been able to keep up. But I will point out, even though they haven't kept up with the mRNA companies, they beat out companies like Sanofi and GlaxoSmithKline, which are very experienced vaccine makers and actually getting a COVID vaccine to the market in the U.S. And finally, we can get to the aforementioned Texas two-step, a lovely, apparently, term of art in the legal field. And people may recall this, that Johnson & Johnson, which is liable to pay out billions of dollars in settlement money related to its talc powder, executed this maneuver in which it would spin out the talc business, basically, into a subsidiary and then declare bankruptcy for that subsidiary in order to, I guess, you know, make it easier to handle this large amount of money that the company needed to pay out. The company promised to actually meet its obligations um, in doing this Texas two-step, as apparently it is called. But this was controversial because basically it looked like a massive firm like Johnson & Johnson trying to, if not shortchange, then at least do something a little cute and a little icky um, with what is legal liabilities to legitimate people who won in court um, that they had been harmed by its products. But Meg, this week we got news that the two-step apparently will not be going forward. Yeah, well, <laughs> as ever, 
unless it has gone to the Supreme Court, which it has not yet, um, you know, there can be appeals and there will be. But um, we did hear from a federal appeals court that um, they were rejecting uh, J&J's plan to put this uh, group, you know, this essentially set of liabilities, which it spun out into its own little corporate entity. Uh, the attempt to put that into bankruptcy is being rejected. And essentially, the the court said, or this panel um said that it wasn't under financial distress, um, that because there was a guarantee from Big J&J, which is, of course, an extremely creditworthy company, has one of the best credit ratings in the S&P 500s, $400 billion plus market cap company, um, there was a guarantee from that company to, to pay. Uh, and so it was not under financial distress. Um, it was a really interesting decision, not just because of J&J. And you know, I did see one estimate from Wells Fargo's Larry Beagleson, who said it potentially takes takes the liabilities for J&J from $2 billion to $10 billion, but we'll see how that goes. Um, but there are broader implications for companies perhaps seeking to use this type of maneuver to protect themselves against consumer product liabilities claims. Uh, we already saw 3M trying to use this for claims over faulty earplugs for um, people in combat. Um, we've seen it be used in asbestos cases before. Um, so, you know, it's kind of an interesting broader financial question, but then also for J&J, um, you know, they may have to go through this kind of one by one. There are 38,000 cases. Many of them have been grouped together, uh, more than 38,000. Um, but they are going to appeal. They're going to challenge this ruling. Um, you know, I think it'll go to the broader appeals court first, um, but you know, potentially it could go up to the Supreme Court. And if it takes up the case, you know, it really will be a corporate question of, of can the bankruptcy court be used in this way? Um, which it has been increasingly in a lot of these, you know, consumer products, you know, health cases where people are claiming their health has been hurt by various things. One thing I thought was fascinating is that I didn't read the entire uh, 50 odd page ruling, but in news coverage of it, um, you know, the judges pointed out that, you know, as you said, that what J&J was trying to do consolidating these cases was not an appropriate pretext for like using the bankruptcy system, which is like for companies that are facing insolvency, which Johnson & Johnson is not, but also noted that wanting to protect the brand was not uh, an excuse to use the bankruptcy system. And so to the extent that J&J executed the Texas two-step to protect the brand Johnson & Johnson, um, the fact that we've now said Johnson & Johnson about nine times in discussing this kind of unsavory maneuver that has been covered globally at this point suggests to me that maybe that has backfired hoist by their own guitar. <laughs> Friday, a committee of expert advisors to the World Health Organization met to discuss whether COVID-19 still constitutes a public health emergency of international concern, or, as our colleague Helen Branswell tells us, the acronym's pronounced a fake. On Monday, the news came, yes, it still is, but that may change in the coming months. Meanwhile, the emergency phase of the pandemic is apparently coming to a close here in the United States as well. On Monday, the Biden administration announced its plan to end the national emergency and public health emergency declarations around COVID on May 11th. So what does that mean exactly? Stats Rachel Kors is here to explain. Rachel, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you wrote a deep dive into what a headache this whole process would be for the entire healthcare system back in March 2022. So obviously you were anticipating this and experts were anticipating this even then. But what do you think took until now for the White House to decide to end these emergency declarations? 
Well, I think there was a lot of preparation that had to take place. And just to be clear, the country is in a much better place to handle the end of this emergency now than it was back when I wrote this story last March. Congress has done um, a lot of preparation to kind of um, lay out a a timeline for some of these um, flexibilities and programs to end. Um, and they've chosen to extend other ones beyond kind of the end of the emergency. So uh, we are in a much better place now. But um, I think the exact kind of impetus here, um, it was pretty clear that the White House was trying to um, avoid an embarrassing vote um, in the House because House Republicans wanted to vote to end the public health emergency immediately. And I think there has just been this um, realization um, from states um, that this these emergency you know programs are costing them a lot of money, and I think there's been you know a lack of support f- for Democrats as well uh, for some of them to keep these programs going. So I think the White House wanted to give some assurance to those Democrats that you know there is an end in sight that they are kind of planning for this to happen. So don't vote with the Republicans to just end this immediately kind of thing. So I think there were some political um, considerations as well. So as you pointed out um, all the way back last year, there are a number of areas in which rolling this back will have an impact from Medicaid enrollment to telehealth and hospitals. But one thing that is not expected to change are emergency use authorizations for vaccines, drugs, and tests for COVID-19. Why not? So this issue is really complicated, <laughs> but um, the short answer is that there are a lot of different laws that Congress has passed over time with a lot of different emergency authorities. So I think two different laws with two different authorities are expected to expire on May um, 11th, but there's there are still other laws with other emergencies that aren't necessarily ending at that point in time. Um, And the FDA has uh, already said publicly that they um, expect to continue to issue um, EUAs and that the EUAs that they've already issued, you know, won't expire at that time. And they'll give us some more information about kind of how that transition will work. But um, I mean, it would it would have been really nice if Congress had just rolled up all the authorities that go that happen or are triggered in any given emergency into one law. Um, but that's not really how it works. It kind of happens piecemeal over time. And Rachel, what does this mean for Medicaid? So the Medicaid issue um, was mostly resolved by Congress Um in December with the big government funding bill. So it's actually, that whole process is going to begin before May. So on April 1st, we're going to see states um, begin the redetermination process, which is a big word, which basically means that um, they're going to be able to start kicking ineligible people out of their Medicaid programs. Because during the pandemic, the government gave them some extra money Um, If they just kept everyone on Medicaid, even if their income fluctuated um, and they might not have been eligible or, you know, something like that. They the government thought there was an interest in making sure that people had consistent health insurance. But the Medicaid rules, predictably, have swelled across the country. And so I think states are pretty eager to start, you know, making sure um, the only people that they're paying to cover are the ones who actually qualify for the program. So that will actually, that's not related to the public health emergency anymore. 
and that will start April 1st. Um, but there are some programs that allowed Medicaid to pay for services or COVID-19 services for um, uninsured people at no cost to the state that will expire with the public health emergency. Um, but I think there, the big kind of question was resolved um, and it'll actually start April 1st. So the other impacts you laid out were on telehealth and hospitals. What did those um, effects look like? The telehealth extension is now not tied to the public health emergency anymore. Uh, lawmakers decided that they wanted some extra time to actually decide what they wanted to make permanent in this space, um, and they didn't want to end those. So um, I think in general, those flexibilities will continue. I think there um, is one element um, that some people are concerned about in relation to uh, medications uh, to treat substance abuse disorders. Um, and those may not be able to be prescribed remotely anymore at the end of the emergency. So that is one area to watch. And uh, the hospital payments that you mentioned um, will also end um, with the health and public health emergency. And what that is, is that hospitals kind of got b extra bonus payments for Medicare for treating COVID-19 patients in the hospital. I want to say it was like a 20% bonus. Um, and, and originally the idea was that hospitals might have to, you know, have more PPE or, you know, just expend more resources to take care of the COVID-19 patients back in the day when they had their own, you know, wings of hospitals. Um, but again, things um, aren't how they used to be. And so hospitals will go back to a more baseline reimbursement level for that. So on maybe more of an individual level, I think a lot of people seeing this news, seeing headlines, would wonder what the end of the emergency declaration means for them, and, and then specifically for access to free COVID vaccines, drugs, and tests. And kind of to that notion, White House COVID response coordinator and former guest of this podcast, Dr. Ashish Shah, tweeted in his heavily line-breaked sort of poem style yesterday, quote, when the PHE ends, access to free vaccines and treatments doesn't go away. And over time, as we transition this to the regular healthcare system, we are going to make sure that COVID vaccines and treatments remain accessible and affordable for Americans. I mean, accessible and affordable, he doesn't say free. I think there's a natural question. I know this is just speculation. Are these things going to be harder to access in the months ahead as uh, the U.S. moves away from the way they've handled the pandemic for the past couple of years? Well, I think it depends what you mean by harder to access. Um, will they be available? Yes. And I think what um, Ashish Shah was talking about was the fact that right now there's a lot of uh, vaccines and therapeutics circulating that the government still bought. Um, and those will still be free um, to patients. But um, I think there's going to be a time when those free supplies run out. And it's going to have to work like any other vaccine or any other drug. And it's true, as you pointed out, that those products will no longer necessarily be free because the public health emergency provided cost-sharing protections for um, especially therapeutics, um, but also testing. You know, the uh, insurers have to reimburse people for the over-the-counter tests. They have to cover tests um, at a doctor's office for free. And all those protections would end. And it's kind of unclear what insurers are going to choose to do. I mean, to some degree, private insurers usually cover vaccines as like a preventative service kind of thing. So there's reason to believe that vaccines may continue to be free. Um, 
But in terms of tests and therapeutics, um, we just don't really know what private insurers are going to choose to do or even what Medicare is going to choose to do um, for those products. And I, I reached out to a bunch of insurers this week and asked them what their plans are, and none of them had any information to offer me, even though they've known that the end of this emergency is going to be coming for a very long time. So it is going to be a transition period. Um, and so if people out here are listening and it might be a good time to, you know, order um, some tests um, and get them reimbursed by your insurer and, you know, have a little stockpile because that benefit is going to end uh, in May. But other than that, I think it is true that um, there's just going to be a lot less predictability and that may, you know, discourage people from seeking these services. Good advice. News you can use. Um, so I guess our last question for you, Rachel, is, I mean, I think we all might have thought at the beginning of the pandemic that there was going to be this moment when we all collectively emerged and like ripped off our masks and it was declared that COVID is over and we're out of the pandemic and, you know, it lasted from this period to this period and now it's done. Like, is this that moment? We still have a large number of people dying every day from COVID. I mean, how does it how do you react to this sort of declaration, like on a more sort of qualitative level, I guess? Right. I think that President Biden politically has wanted to declare COVID over for a long time. And there's been this tension within the administration that we've seen play out where they're trying to, you know, get the positive message out there about, you know, all these products that are available and all these vaccines that are available. But in some ways, that's almost backfired on their efforts to, you know, continue developing new medicines because Congress has kind of reacted and said, you know what, things are so good for you and, you know, we're doing so well that we're just not going to, you know, offer any additional funds. And I think that, Politically, as a country, we've kind of accepted this status quo where we are right now. Um, and unless there's, you know, some change, I don't see um, lawmakers or uh, politicians really reacting to that. So it it wasn't really the satisfying end. And I think a lot of it um, has been kind of uh, practical, um, looking at kind of the cost of certain programs and uh, what flexibilities are are needed at any given time. So it's it's not really the satisfying end that I think the White House would have wanted, but I think this um, the political pressure has been moving in this direction for for a while, and um, I think we're all just going to have to um, adapt to this world um, where uh, the, our definition of emergency um, feels a little different than it used to. So, if this was a movie, the ending is not one where you'd skip out of the theater feeling triumphant and good and no <laughs> thank you so much for joining us yeah thanks so much this has been great <laughs> that does it for another episode of the read out loud thank you to hyacinth empanado for producing this week's episode hyacinth is also one of our senior producers along with Alyssa ambrose our executive producer is rick burke and our theme music is by brian joel and we'd love to hear from you tell us what you like about this week's episode what you didn't like and how you're feeling about the end of the emergency declaration for covid you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com and if you like what we do leave a review or a rating on apple podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts see you next week